0: This episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra is sponsored by Badger State Brewing, who makes some of our favorite beers. Badger State's located right here in Green Bay, Wisconsin, just a short drive from where this season and last season of Cold Case Frozen Tundra take place.
1: If you listened to the first episode, you know that Badger State's Grassy Place Hazy IPA is my all-time hands-down favorite beer. With the weather improving, I can't wait to sit outside and enjoy the Wisconsin summer along with a refreshing grassy place. And sometimes when I'm in the mood for something a little bit lighter, I'll grab a brewski lager. It's awesome, especially when the weather starts to warm up.
0: When the weather gets warm, that brewski lager seems to provide just the right level of refreshment without taking you out of the day. It's just an easy sipper and a good
1: one to enjoy. Super sessionable, great beer. Visit badgerstatebrewing.com to see the recently expanded distribution locations, check out the beer list, pick up some merch, and even order beer for pickup if you're in the local area. That's Badger, B-A-D-G-E-R, statebrewing.com.
0: Check them out on social media and let them know that we sent you, and support your local brewery. of 2011, the town of Menasha Police Department held a widely attended press conference that would forever change the trajectory of the investigation into the mysterious disappearance of Lori Deppis. Nearly 19 years after the 20-year-old Appleton, Wisconsin woman had vanished without a trace, only steps from the door to the apartment building where her boyfriend and two of their friends waited to greet her, a case which had yielded shockingly few answers, Investigators now plan to inform the public of a major breakthrough. Larry DeWayne Hall, a convicted kidnapper and suspected serial killer, had confessed to abducting and murdering Lori in August of 1992. He'd given them details of the crime and a location for her remains, though detective's search had not yielded results. The media jumped on the story. It offered closure to a mystery that had plagued the community for nearly two decades. Lori's family, friends, and many members of the public had searched and grieved and held on to hope for many years without answers in return. Now, the media accounts read, their wait was over. For many, that's where the story ended. Larry Duane Hall, already incarcerated for the abduction of a 15-year-old in Illinois, was guilty of the crime. His confession in the absence of a successful search for Lori's body was the best answer available. The case, in many people's eyes, was closed. But investigators searching for answers in Lori's disappearance tell another story. To them, it's entirely possible Larry Hall did commit the crime, but the lack of evidence to support his confession means the case remains open. It's also possibly concerning. How could the perpetrator of such a heinous act, a man willing to admit his guilt of his own volition, fail to provide any information that confirms he's telling the truth? Isn't that the point of coming clean? During the 15 years between the time Larry's name first arose in the case, and his confession, investigators had continued to work to solve the mystery of what happened to Lori Depis. There were. Are. Other suspects that have not been ruled out, whose timelines, motives, or stories also seem to support that they could have committed the crime. This is one of them. I'm Matt Hiskis, and this is Cold Case Frozen Tundra, Season 2, Episode 4, David.
1: Welcome to the Cold Case Frozen Tundra podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, your co-host, along with Matt, in this search for the truth behind the disappearance of Lori Jean Depis. In the last episode, we shared the details on the life and suspected crimes of Larry Duane Hall, the man who ultimately confessed to Lori's abduction and murder. However, we may never know the validity of Larry's claims. It's well documented that he engaged in suspicious behavior, that he followed and spooked women on many occasions in the late 1980s and up through his arrest in 1994. His license plate was noted and reported by multiple women and girls who were frightened by the fact that he had followed or approached them in his van. He's convicted of a similar crime, currently incarcerated for the kidnapping of 15-year-old Jessica Roach, and Larry's also suspected in the disappearance of many other women. But we also know that Larry Dwayne Hall has a history of providing details that cannot be verified, that he's often contradicted himself in interviews, and that he has on multiple occasions recanted his stories after the fact. Regardless of whether or not he's being truthful at any given time, the fact remains that this history makes any of Larry's statements incredibly unreliable, something we'll discuss in more depth in a later episode. Today, we want to take a look at another individual who has never been ruled out as a significant person of interest in Lori's disappearance. His name is David Frank Spanbauer. David Spanbauer was born in 1941
0: in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, though he would one day become one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminals, most notably for the crimes he committed right during the peak of the Lori Depis investigation. Spanbauer's legal entanglements began much earlier than that, during his teenage and high school years in Oshkosh. Perhaps influenced by the death of his father at age 14, David Spanbauer struggled to stay on the right side of the law during his formative years. Juvenile legal records are typically kept sealed, and we do not know the exact nature of his interactions with law enforcement during this period, but we do know that he frequently had run-ins with the police that he was known to local officers, and that his behavioral and legal issues ultimately caused him to drop out of Oshkosh High School at the age of 17 and enlist in the U.S. Navy. The structured training and rigid regulations of the armed forces did not have the desired impact. Records show that David Spanbauer continued his unsettling trend of disregard for the rules. Before he was ultimately dishonorably discharged and sent home with a letter urging his mother to set him up with psychiatric care, David was court-martialed multiple times for going AWOL. He had spent months in the brig, his Navy ship's equivalent of confinement in jail.
1: Upon his return to Oshkosh in 1959, David Spambauer attempted to get his high school diploma. He re-enrolled at Oshkosh High School and briefly attended classes but quickly dropped out, failing to meet his goal of graduating. With no high school degree and only a failed stint in the Navy on his resume, it's no surprise that Spanbauer quickly returned to his pattern of criminal behavior. In January of 1960, David broke into an Appleton residence, stealing what he could, including rings, cash, booze, and weapons, a hunting knife, and a 22 caliber handgun. The very next night, with his new pistol in hand, Spanbauer burglarized another home, this time in Nina, Wisconsin, about a 15-minute drive down the highway. And he didn't stop there. David Spanbauer continued his crime spree throughout the month of January and into February. Worst of all, he was quickly escalating.
0: On February 16th, officers caught David during an attempted robbery in Milwaukee. Though investigators had not yet connected him to the prior robberies in Appleton and Nina, David cracked under the pressure of the interrogation, admitting to those robberies, and more. Spanbauer told the Milwaukee officers that about a week after his second burglary, he had broken into a home back in Appleton, the area of his first crime, where he encountered a 13-year-old girl doing schoolwork as her mother slept in another room. David stole cash from the home, as was the intent of his break-in, but he then pulled out a stolen 22 caliber handgun, pointed it at the girl, and marched her out behind the home's garage. Spanbauer planned to rape the girl, and he told her this. Then he hit her twice, causing her to cry out in pain. Fortunately, a neighborhood resident happened to be passing by the house and overheard the girl's cry. He called out, and he scared David Spanbauer into fleeing the scene in his car.
1: Sadly, the night was not yet over for the then 19-year-old Spanbauer. His frantic drive from the assault and burglary in Appleton took him 35 minutes north up US 41 to Green Bay, where he told officers he saw a 16-year-old girl through the well-lit window of a home it would turn out that she was babysitting her cousins. David, no longer in his vehicle, crept up to the window and watched the girl as she played piano. After a while, he told investigators, he grabbed his pistol and entered the home. He found some cash and pocketed it. Then he took the girl at gunpoint to a bedroom and raped her. Spanbauer told the officers that once again, for the second time that night, things had not gone as planned. The 16-year-old's uncle, the father of the children she was babysitting, returned home while David was still in the house. David panicked, desperate to escape. He shot the man in the face as he sprinted out of the home.
0: The man David Spanbauer shot, thankfully, survived his wounds. Less fortunate, given his later crimes, was the fact that this meant there would be no murder charge. David would avoid the significantly more stringent penalty a murder charge would have carried. That year, David Spanbauer was convicted of the burglary and rape to which he'd confessed, along with the other burglaries from January and the attempted robbery that had been in progress when he was arrested the judge labeled him a sexual deviant and sentenced him to 70 years in prison for these crimes. The sentence carried with it the possibility of parole, and 12 years later, he got it. In May of 1972, the now 31-year-old parolee David Spanbauer walked out of prison with a new lease on life and a tattoo of a devil on his forearm, a mark that, in hindsight, seems a clear indicator of the direction his post-prison life would lead.
1: Although he made a couple of steps towards improving his situation, enrolling at a technical college and finding housing at a YMCA in Madison, Wisconsin, Spanbauer was quickly drawn back into crime. He let an escaped prisoner, and parolees are not to have contact with other inmates, actually borrow his car. The fugitive was promptly apprehended with it, Spanbauer was able to avoid returning to prison over this, but it wouldn't last long. In 1960, when David Spanbauer had first entered prison, attitudes and styles had been relatively conservative. During his 12-year incarceration, things had dramatically changed. From his prison cell, Spanbauer had missed Beatlemania, the start of the Vietnam War and a summer of love. As he now walked the bikini-laden lakefront beaches of Madison, Wisconsin in 1972, David encountered a society he had never known, one he would later tell psychologists he was not equipped to handle, as though that could possibly excuse his actions.
0: In August of that year, David picked up a young woman who was hitchhiking along Highway 51. He pulled out a knife, told the 17-year-old he was going to rape and murder her, then cried along with her as he brought her to Token Creek County Park, which sits along the northeast edge of Madison. There, he tied her up, raped her, but he didn't kill her. The tattoo David had gotten in prison was a distinct characteristic. The woman he'd abducted and raped reported the crime to police. When they asked if she could provide information on her attacker, she recalled that he'd had a devil on his forearm. David was picked up as a suspect, and the 17-year-old woman provided a positive visual identification. In May of 1973, almost exactly a year after he was released on parole, David Spanbauer was back in front of a judge to receive sentencing for another heinous crime. Prosecutors had argued David was a clear threat, that he had little regard for the law or other people. They said it warranted a new maximum charge of 50 years in prison in addition to the time David Spanbauer owed for violating
1: the terms of his parole. The judge concerningly disagreed. Citing that Spanbauer's initial conviction involved a home invasion, rape at knife point, and the shooting of another individual with a handgun, he stated from the bench that this case was in effect milder. David Spanbauer hadn't broken into a home or nearly murdered anybody. Hitchhikers, the judge added, get into vehicles willingly and in doing so run a certain degree of risk. Though the judge still classified Spanbauer as a dangerous sociopath, he stated the lesser degree of violence in this case showed that he was making some degree of improvement. He sentenced David Spanbauer to return to prison for violation of his parole and added an additional 18-year sentence to the new rape conviction. But he ruled the two could be served concurrently rather than consecutively. Both the sentences for parole violation and the new rape conviction continue to carry the possibility of parole. Following the conviction
0: and sentencing that many of us, though admittedly with the benefit of hindsight, would find disturbingly light-handed given the nature of David Spanbauer's crimes, it seemed that at least some aspect of the justice system, the parole board, had begun to see Spanbauer for what he was. Despite an aggressive letter-writing campaign launched from David's prison cell, participation in therapy and other self-help groups, and even a short-lived marriage that David claimed gave him fatherly duties that required early release, the parole board stood firm against the seemingly non-stop onslaught of parole requests. David Spanbauer, they replied again and again, would finish his full 18-year sentence. In 1991 at the end of that 18 years, David Spanbauer once again crossed the threshold of the prison into the Wisconsin daylight free of his sentence in the 1972 rape and under a renewed status as a parolee in the original 70-year sentence from 1960.
1: 50-year-old David Spanbauer seemed to keep a lower profile this time, at least at first. 1991 passed. He seemed to comply with the terms of his parole Spanbauer filled out reports on his activities when requested, he submitted forms to have travel approved, and he was not shown to have engaged in any criminal activities. 1991 turned into 1992. It's the year Lori Depas would go missing. David Spanbauer, age 51, is free from prison. He remains on parole. We're gonna come back to this point in time because it's extremely important in our understanding of whether David Spanbauer may be responsible for the disappearance of Lori Deppes. But before we do that, we need to continue with what we know of David Spanbauer's actions, which pick up actually just after Lori vanished. You may
0: recall that in episode two of this podcast, Retired DCI Special Agent Kira Schallhorn mentioned two names of females who went missing during the same general time period that Lori disappeared. The first, Ronel Ronnie Eichstadt, went missing on August 23, 1992, just four days after Lori's friends heard her pull into the parking lot at Wilson Court Apartments, then vanish without a clue. Ronnie Eichstadt was 10 years old in 1992. As the search for Lori Depis ramped up 45 minutes north in Menasha, Ronnie's bike was found near her home in Ripon, Wisconsin. There was no sign of Renell, who, at 10 years old, didn't seem capable of making it too far away on her own. As the days went by with concurrent searches in the two Wisconsin towns, Ronnie's and Lori's cases became linked, in the sense that they typified the strange rash of disappearances in the region. The shared communities were shocked by the news and the sense of unease. The same groups put up rewards for information in either case, with Ronnie and Lori side by side on posters. That is, for six weeks, until the body of Ronelle Eichstadt was found dumped in a ditch near a cornfield fence. Authorities determined she was killed by asphyxiation. The hunt for Ronnie's killer was on. The search for any evidence of Lori Deppis
1: at all continued. Neither family would get the answers they craved for years, although Rennell's case would be closed sooner. It's now 1994. Two more years have passed. David Spanbauer, it seems, has continued to keep out of legal trouble. There were no reports of wrongdoing, and to those monitoring him, David seemed to be adjusting to rehabilitated life. But there was more to it. On July 3, a 24-year-old woman was biking near Hartman Creek State Park in Waupaco, Wisconsin, when a maroon four-door car slammed into her, knocking her from her bike. A late middle-aged man got out of the vehicle, gun in hand. He began walking toward her, but as he advanced, another car came down the road. The man hurried back into his car and took off. Later that day, a home in Appleton is burglarized. Just a few days later, on July the
0: 9th, 21-year-old Trudy Jeske of Appleton surprised a burglar in her home. The armed, older, middle-aged intruder, apparently believing he'd been alone in the house, was shocked to find her in a bedroom. He shot Trudy in the chest, killing her. There were no immediate arrests. Then, during Labor Day weekend in September, the second girl Kira Shawhorn mentioned in Episode 2 of this podcast went missing. Her name was Cora Jones, age 12.
1: Cora Jones had set off on her bicycle from her grandmother's house in Waupaca, Wisconsin. There was a small bridge over a creek just down the road where she would often play and explore. This time, however, she did not return. Her grandmother and other friends and relatives launched a search after Cora's bike is found near the roadway. There are no other clues to indicate where she might have gone. Please take over the search, but nothing turns up in the short term. As you'd expect, this is big news. Another girl, the third in two years, and the fourth in four years with the addition of Barrett Beck, is missing with no idea who might have committed the crime. Of the four disappearances, only two bodies had ever been recovered, Barrett Beck's in 1990 and Ronell Eichstatt's in 1992. Lori and now Cora were gone without a trace. None of the killers, or maybe the same killer, have been arrested.
0: Five days later, on September 10, two hunters setting up deer blinds near a remote road in Antigo, Wisconsin, about 70 miles from the location where Cora went missing, found the remains of a girl bound, strangled, and positioned in an overgrown weedy ditch. Dental records showed it was the remains of Cora Jones. Another of the missing girls found, her killer still on the loose. Meanwhile, residents in Appleton, Wisconsin, are wrestling with a continued rash of burglaries and assaults. On October 13, a house was broken into and robbed. On October 20, a 15-year-old girl and on November 5, a 31-year-old woman were raped in their homes people were living in fear of an unknown assailant. It could be anyone they passed or even knew. And then, on November 14, there was a break. A homeowner in Combined Locks, Wisconsin, about 15 minutes from Appleton, caught a man attempting to break into the back of his house. The homeowner chased the invader on foot, eventually catching him, tackling him, and wrestling him into submission until the police arrived the would-be burglar had a distinctive tattoo of a devil on his arm.
1: Just as he had done years and years ago when he was first arrested in 1960, David Spanbauer was unable to keep the truth from officers who questioned him. Maybe he couldn't handle the pressure. Perhaps he wanted them to know. Either way, over the next few days of conversations with detectives, Spanbauer admitted to the attempted assault at Hartman Creek in July, the one that was interrupted by the fortunate timing of another vehicle on the road. Then the next day, David Spanbauer confessed to abducting and murdering Ronell Eichstatt in 1992, killing Trudy Jesky during a robbery of her home, and taking and strangling Cora Jones the prior month. He also admitted that he was responsible for the recent spree of burglaries and rapes in Appleton and surrounding areas. Spanbauer's confessions were corroborated by forensic evidence. Fibers taken from the recently discovered body of Cora Jones were tested against the carpet of David Spanbauer's burgundy Pontiac Bonneville. They were a perfect match. For his crimes, Spanbauer finally got the sentence he deserved, one that meant that he'd never again live outside the walls of a prison, never free to ruin or end another life. On December 20, 1994, Spanbauer was handed three consecutive life sentences for the murders of Ronnie Eichstapp, Trudy Jeske, and Cora Jones. Beyond that, he was sentenced to an additional 403 years in prison for the many other crimes he'd committed and the trail of destruction he'd left in his wake. You might be asking yourself, how does the story of David
0: Spanbauer relate to Lori Deppis? That's a fair question. Other than the general time frame and the areas in which Spanbauer operated, it doesn't seem there's much evidence from what we've heard that would make him a likely suspect. At least not any more likely than any other criminal who may have lived in the area, and definitely not as convincing a figure in Lori's case as Larry Hall, whose confession could not be supported with evidence. To answer the question, we need to return to a point earlier in our story. Back to the beginning of 1992, It's a period during which, frankly, we don't know much about the activities of David Spanbauer. By all available accounts, he wasn't doing much during this time, at least not in the way of illegal activities, or so it seems. In researching this podcast, we received a message from Barbara, we're keeping her last name off the record to protect her privacy, who told us a disturbing tale from this exact period of time. The unknown gap in David Spanbauer's story between the start of 1992 and August of that year when both Ronell Eichstadt and Lori Depis went missing. The story involves Barbara's daughter Kelly, who tragically is no longer with us. But in 1992, Kelly worked at the Fox River Mall like Lori. Barbara wanted to share the information on Kelly's behalf, saying Kelly would have wanted to provide it if there was any chance of helping find Lori. Here's Barbara.
2: Kelly had had a little boy the August before, and '91, and I used to bring him out to the mall when she was working, and then we would, you know, she would take her breaks with me, and we would stop it at the uh, store where Lori worked and talked to her in the doorway or, you know, she'd come out to see the baby. So I know, and I know they took breaks together and dinners together and stuff like that.
1: So. Although they worked at different stores in the mall, Kelly at Bath and Body Works and Lori at Graffiti, Barbara mentions that the two were friends, that they often spent their break times together at the mall's food court and other common areas where, as you would imagine, shoppers would see them together as they passed for most of us an unremarkable occurrence kelly barbara later told us was short and small like lori who stood five and a half feet tall and weighed roughly 115 pounds kelly also wore her light brown or reddish hair in a similar length and style as lori none of this neither their breaks together nor their similar physical traits would be noteworthy if it had not been for the events that occurred in early 1992, when a strange man started hanging around Bath & Body Works. He seemed to single out the weekdays that Kelly was working.
2: That was in February and she quit in March, but I think he had been coming in before that. It was kind of a condensed area of time, not like a year or anything like that, but very often. And it seemed like he'd always be in there. She worked a lot of nights because she was going to the tech. And then she had, you know, this little boy. So she was working a lot of nights and weekends, but she said she'd never see him on weekends. It was always nights that she worked. And I think most of the time it was around closing time, which is why I started taking her to work and picking her up. Her managers were aware of it and would actually ask her to go into the back room uh, when he was there because they all felt he was creepy. But, you know, what are you going to do? He's a customer. And um, she said, um, it used to bother me because she'd say, Mom, you you can always smell him before you actually see him. That he always had this very strange, dirty smell about him. And she said, sometimes I'd be waiting on somebody else. And I'd know he was standing right behind me.
0: At first, the man was just around. As Barbara mentioned, he'd loiter around the store, usually toward the end of the night, which made Kelly uneasy. Then he began talking to Kelly, requesting that she help him even if other employees approached him first he started making requests that, to Kelly, were very concerning.
2: Very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. She, I mean, it would be her first conversation when she'd come in the house, you know, that, um, that he was just so creepy. And the things he'd say to her were creepy. And I know there was one comment about he was looking for massage oils, which really turned her off. <laughs> And he asked her which one was her favorite, and she said, "Well, they don't make that one anymore." But he wanted her to see if she could get some. And I know she commented to me that he wouldn't leave his name or phone number. He would just he said he would just come back. And I, I know it was reported to the mall, and I, and they had said that there were other complaints about a similar type guy. I mean, there could have been more than one, but a similar type guy from other stores. And, um, you know, was creeped her out, too.
1: Kelly's managers at the store, as well as mall security, were aware of the man and his strange behavior. But, as Barbara pointed out earlier, there was only so much that they could do. He was suspicious and creepy, for sure. But he wasn't breaking any rules. Kelly's store was connected through an internal door to express which was located next to it in the mall. Both stores were under the same management. Aware of the man's concerning behavior, but limited in the steps that they could take, Kelly's managers told her that if she felt too intimidated or if there weren't enough people around, she could use the connecting door to express to request that employees there come over to Bath and Body Works to offer additional support. None of this seemed to have an impact on the man's escalating behavior. He continued to hang around, asking for Kelly, and then it got much more serious.
2: It was, it was in, like, towards the end of February, I think, February, March, a lot of this stuff happened in that, in that time period. Um, She was working, and when she got out, she noticed him outside of the store, and Usually, she would park on the side by Sears and structure on on that side of the building. But this night, she parked in front of what was Dayton's at that time. It's Macy's now. And when she noticed him outside of the store, she went into Dayton's. She had that night parked in front of Dayton's. And she said she didn't want to go out when he was watching her because she noticed him at the door, the front door of Dayton's. And when he disappeared, she said she ran out the back door and got to her car, but it was all, or to her car, it was all frosted up. It must have stormed that night, and she said the windshield was all frost. So she was trying to scrape the windows, and he came around the building in his car, which she described, and... She got in the car and she said, I was trying to drive through the parking lot. It was like late, like probably around 930 or 10, because she said Dayton's was starting to close. And um, so she was trying to drive through the parking lot with her hand out the window, trying to scrape the window. But as she got on College Avenue, she knew he was behind her and he stayed behind her until they got up by um, Richmond and College Avenue, right by uh, where the Walgreens is there. And she told me he was in the right lane next to her and she couldn't see the license plate because he was so close. And then when she was in the middle lane, when the light turned green, she was able to swing over to the left to the turn lane and go around the corner and pass good company. And that's where she lost him. He was not able to swing across the two lanes. So and then she explained that the next the next day he came in and told her never to try to get away from him because his words were, Do you know what I do to girls who try to get away? And I think that was that would that did it.
0: The man had crossed a line. Kelly, who felt she was extremely lucky to get away that night, came home and told her mother Barbara what had happened. Barbara realized the situation had become more serious and didn't want to forget a single detail. This man, though they didn't know who he was, seemed dangerous. As Kelly recounted the story at length, Barbara took notes careful to record any bits of information that could come in handy if the story was turned over to police. Barbara was kind enough to send us those pages, which are neatly formatted on the creased, worn paper, displaying the distinct keystrokes of a typewriter or early word processor. The notes include the same events we've heard Barbara describe, along with other little tidbits. The way the man used to call Kelly the little red-haired girl. Or how he'd tell her he liked girls who smile, that she had a pretty smile. The notes also contain information on the vehicle the man drove on the night he followed Kelly from the mall. As we heard Barbara mention, he kept too close to Kelly's vehicle for her to make out the license plate on his front bumper. But Kelly did recall the details of his car, which she described as an older model, larger car, certainly not compact, that was brownish or burgundy in color. It also might have had a slightly lighter colored top, but Kelly wasn't positive. It had been dark when she left the mall, and a frost had fallen upon vehicles in the parking lots.
1: The incident of the man following Kelly, paired with his veiled threat at the store shortly thereafter, was too much. Kelly decided to quit her job at the mall that March in order to remove herself from the situation. But the man's behavior stuck with the family. Barbara and Kelly, concerned that the man would target somebody else at the mall in Kelly's absence, began to take occasional trips there, searching for him. Their plan was simple. Kelly would keep an eye out for him since she knew what he looked like, and if they spotted him, would quickly hide somewhere to avoid being seen while Barbara, who the man had never met, would follow to see what he was up to, or maybe report him to security, or maybe gather more information, like a license plate number. But the searches didn't pan out. Though Barbara said they made multiple trips over the following months, they never caught sight of the man with the greasy, grayish-blonde hair and foul odor. It had been over six months since Kelly quit her job at the Fox
0: River Mall when the news broke that Lori Deppis had gone missing on August 19. Although Barbara and Kelly had not heard any reports of the man since Kelly left Bath & Body Works and their trips to find him had not led to any sightings, to the two women, It was as though their worst fear had been confirmed. Surely, the suspicious man who'd stalked and followed Kelly, who'd very likely seen her taking breaks with Lori at the mall, had turned his eye toward another woman once Kelly quit.
2: You know, she never would have connected it if Lori had not worked out there, and she, you know, Kelly would have breaks with her and lunch with her, and uh, if they weren't connected at the mall. I don't think she would have thought of it, but it was just you know like I, she just jumped to the conclusion, Mom, it had to be him, you know, because they worked so close and and the chance that he would have seen them together, I think just cemented it in both of our heads that there had to be something wrong there, and then the fact that she quit you know right in March um you know, we just, I guess both thought he just turned his attention to Lori who had seen Kelly with.
1: Barbara told us that she and Kelly reported this information to detectives who confirmed it was potentially relevant and needed to follow up. However, as the man had never left his name or number at the store and could not be found at the time, investigators were left with only his description, which unfortunately could fit any number of late middle-aged men. Though it was a good tip, it didn't lead officers any closer to an answer, or better yet, an arrest. And then, two years later, David Spanbauer was caught breaking into a home and arrested. Carpet fibers from his burgundy Pontiac Bonneville linked him to the body of Cora Jones, corroborating his confession. Spanbauer was in his 50s with dirty blonde, graying hair, disheveled in his mugshot that was aired on the news and was printed in
2: papers oh no there was there was no doubt about that at all i mean the minute she saw his picture and in the paper and i said she came home from from school or work or whatever it was and i said they caught somebody and i said i'm going to show you his picture and see what you think and the second she looked at it she said that's him
0: Kelly had been right back in 1992. She had been incredibly lucky to escape the man who followed her as she left the mall. The man who had talked to her over the course of a couple months, who had slowly disclosed his very unwanted interest in her, who'd frightened her into quitting her job, was David Spanbauer, a serial burglar, rapist, and killer. There's little doubt she had been a target. Barbara and Kelly's theory that David Spanbauer turned his attention toward Lori after Kelly suddenly quit her job seems plausible. Kelly was certain that, based on how much attention Spanbauer had been giving her, he would have watched her meeting up with Lori for breaks together in the spring of 1992. We also know that Spanbauer made his way around the mall, even if he did eventually spend most of his time at Bath & Body Works. When Kelly reported her concerns regarding David's behavior to mall security, they had let her know that other stores had complained about a similar-sounding man. Last, we know that this all takes place during a seemingly quiet period for a man who, during the rest of his entire life, didn't go more than a couple months at a time when he was outside of prison without stealing, raping, and killing, often all three. It seems incredibly likely that Ronell Eichstatt's murder shortly after Lori disappeared was not the inciting incident in a new wave of Spanbauer's crimes, but instead, simply a continuation of what he'd been doing all along. He just hasn't been tied to other crimes during this stretch.
2: Well, David Spanbauer is one of the people who was looked at as a suspect in this case. Um, I didn't have any dealings with uh, David Spanbauer in interviewing him, but you know my pres- predecessors who worked on the case did. Um, he certainly was, um, you know, committing his crimes at the same time that this happened in the same area that this happened. He certainly, it certainly could be a possibility.
1: David Spanbauer died in prison in 2002 at the age of 61 killed by a heart condition that had plagued him throughout many of his adult years. The unfortunate reality of this is that if Spanbauer had, in fact, been the one who abducted and killed Lori Depes 10 years earlier, the likelihood of proving this beyond all doubt may have gone to the grave with him. In the absence of any new physical evidence, we're left only with accounts which make David Spanbauer a strong suspect in the case, but not enough to provide a definitive answer. There's one more small bit of information to share with you, which adds to the possibility of Spambauer's involvement, but, it's fair to say, also falls well short of proving it. As we conducted our research for this podcast, we spoke to an individual who had done some work for the TV series On the Case with Paula Zahn, which chronicles true crime mysteries from around the country. Several years ago, the series aired an episode on the murder of Cora Jones and ultimately the arrest of David Spambauer tasked with pairing through boxes of police records made available through the Freedom of Information Act. The individual with whom we spoke noted an odd detail from David Spanbauer's timeline. In 1992, as we mentioned earlier, David Spanbauer was required to file updates on his activities as a condition of his parole. He also had to submit forms for travel and receive permission from an officer in charge of his parole. On August 19, 1992, the date that Lori went missing. Spanbauer had requested and received permission to travel to Minnesota. The researcher for On the Case had seen the signed travel form in the police files. David Spanbauer was out that night, driving past the areas where Lori worked and where she disappeared. He would not have needed to report back for days until his trip was over. It's possible he acted on this window of opportunity.
0: DeWayne Hall confessed to abducting and killing Lori Depis, but has been unwilling or unable to offer any additional information or evidence to support his claim, which is the only confirmed link, albeit a big one, to the case. David Frank Spanbauer never admitted to involvement in Lori's disappearance, despite confessing credibly to other crimes. But his link to Lori, in many respects, is stronger than Hall's. We know he was in the area during the time. He stalked Kelly, Lori's friend, whom he had chosen as a target at the Fox River Mall. He had almost certainly seen Lori during the many nights he followed Kelly there. And we know Spanbauer trailed Kelly in his car after she left work one night in February. Roughly six months later, after Lori left the same place at around the same time of night, she vanished. It's frustrating two strong possibilities, but neither case ironclad. And, shockingly, there's a third potential suspect. One story that, for many, is even more compelling than anything we've heard to this point. That's next time. We at Cold Case Frozen Tundra would like to thank Barbara, Kira, and the many others whose insights helped inform our understanding of this story. The tips you submit via our website are truly helpful. If you want to keep up with new episodes of this show each week, be sure to subscribe or follow Cold Case Frozen Tundra on your favorite podcast platform. You can also check us out online at frozentundrapodcast.com or on Facebook and Instagram at frozen tundra podcast our theme music was created by mario cole 06 and is available on pixabay all other music used in the show was written and recorded by me